Welcome to the Mayo Clinic Cardiovascular Continuing Medical Education Podcast. Join us each week to discuss the most pressing topics in cardiology and gain valuable insights that can be directly applied to your practice. Well, I'd like to uh, welcome our audience and listeners uh, today for another session of uh, interview with the experts. I'm Malcolm Bell. I'm the vice chair for the Department of Cardiovascular Medicine, and I'm really uh, pleased to uh, introduce and uh, welcome uh, Dr. Anand, uh, who's a, uh, an assistant professor of medicine in the department uh, and a specialist in pulmonary hypertension. So uh, welcome, Dr. Anand. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, we're here today to talk about uh, thromboembolic uh, pulmonary hypertension. And maybe I'll just uh, have you just lead off and tell us uh, what exactly uh, this is. It's a relatively new term in the uh, the, the last uh, few years, but something's becoming more uh, commonly used. Uh, so if you could just explain uh, what it is and and, uh, and then perhaps then go on and tell us how you would diagnose this. Yes, uh, chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension is a type of precapillary pulmonary hypertension when there is elevated mean pulmonary artery pressures more than 20 millimeter mercury Pulmonary vascular resistance is more than three wood unit with normally pulmonary capillary wedge pressure. And chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension is caused by chronic pulmonary emboli uh, that form organized scar. And in setting of a diagnosis of precapillary pulmonary hypertension, it's usually diagnosed when there are mismatched ventilation perfusion defects noted on ventilation perfusion scan. It is a challenging diagnosis and a high index of suspicion is needed to diagnose this. We are finding more and more patients uh, uh, with chronic thromboembolic pH, particularly at a center such as ours, which is a center of uh, excellence and expertise. It is diagnosed, as I said, by VQ scan, but the suspicion comes early on when patients present with exertional dyspnea or exercise intolerance. As a part of routine workup, a chest X-ray and ECG are performed, which are usually nonspecific. ECG can show evidence of right ventricular hypertrophy or enlargement. Similarly, chest X-ray can show enlarged pulmonary arteries, right-sided chamber enlargement. An echocardiogram in order would lead to suspicion or confirmation of pulmonary hypertension. And once diagnosis is established, it's important to evaluate every patient unless there is clear-cut other cause of precapillary pulmonary hypertension with a ventilation perfusion scan. There are some markers on physical examination that can be helpful, but often the physical examination signs are similar to any other cause of pulmonary hypertension, such as loud P2, right-sided chamber enlargement as evidenced by RV lift, right-sided third heart sound, and if there is development of RV failure, patient may have signs of RV failure, such as elevated JVP, lower extremity edema, ascites, or a hepatomegaly. Sometimes we can auscultate a brewery of pulmonary arteries in the area of stenosis because of turbulent flow, uh, which can be a clue to this diagnosis. You know, uh, so many of those signs uh, obviously uh, would be seen in other patients with undifferentiated uh, pulmonary hypertension as a, as a first presentation. What makes you suspicious uh, in those patients who come with undifferentiated pulmonary hypertension that this may be chronic thromboembolic uh, pulmonary hypertension? And how many of these patients that you see uh, have a prior history of uh, pulmonary embolism? 
That's a great question. So after the diagnosis of pulmonary hypertension is confirmed by echocardiography or suspected on echocardiography, a right heart catheterization is usually performed and that uh, gives the diagnosis of precapillary pulmonary hypertension. And here at Mayo Clinic, pretty much all patients with precapillary pulmonary hypertension, which we screen with ventilation perfusion scan, which is way more sensitive than uh, CT angiography because the lesions may be distal and may not be evident on, on CT angiogram. And a lot of the times, actually a quarter of the times, patients do not have a prior history of pulmonary embolism. So large registry data has shown that about 2.3% patients with uh, acute pulmonary emboli would eventually develop chronic thromboembolic pH, but a quarter of the patients with chronic thromboembolic pH have no prior history of uh, PE or pulmonary embolism. So a high index of suspicion is, is needed to diagnose this condition. There are some risk associations that have been studied, such as antiphospholipid syndrome, prior malignancy, splenectomy, or ventricular arterial shunts that, when present, are considered strong, strongly associated. But nonetheless, we have a very low threshold of screening our patients with capillary pulmonary hypertension with the ventilation perfusion scan. And if the diagnosis is uh, suspicious or confirmed on VQ scan, those patients should immediately be referred to an expert center such as ours, where the next steps regarding treatment can be decided on. Okay, so just before we talk about uh, treatment, and I know you're going to be very excited to tell us about this. So let me just make sure our listeners get this right. You stress the importance of the VQ lung scan. Is that something that you do before they have cardiac catheterization or only if they have precapillary pulmonary hypertension? We typically perform it either before or after. And again, it depends on the clinical context. So a number of times, echocardiography is very compelling or very telling that this patient has severe pulmonary hypertension and we do not suspect left-sided heart disease or group two pulmonary hypertension. And in that case, we will just order it and a number of times just for convenience of scheduling, even before a right heart catheterization. But other times, if the diagnosis is not clear and we suspect that the patient may have left-sided heart disease, then it's performed after the right heart catheterization. Okay, so you've made the point also that the VQ scan is going to be more sensitive than a CT scan, and I think that's an important thing for our listeners uh, to, to hear. Let's now say that the patient has precapillary pulmonary hypertension, proven a cardiac cath, they have an abnormal VQ scan. What's the next step there? Is there medical treatment that you would institute? Or would you look to move to something more invasive or more confirmatory? Do we do a pulmonary angiogram? Is it then we do a CT scan? Tell us what the next steps would be. Like I said, once the diagnosis is suspected or confirmed, patients should be referred to the center of excellence. And it's important because a number of times patients are managed by both medical and surgical approach. And pulmonary endarterectomy can actually be curative in some of the patients who are candidates for the same. So after the diagnosis is suspected or on VQ scan, the next step, like you mentioned, is to perform an angiography. It's invasive pulmonary angiography, which is, again, I would emphasize needs to be performed in a center of expertise. 
And it can be performed either by Dyna CT or digital subtraction and geography. And bioplane imaging is typically performed because lung is a three-dimensional structure to identify the location and extent of these lesions. And once that's performed, Patients are usually evaluated in a multidisciplinary team to discuss if they may be candidate for pulmonary endarterectomy. And if they're not because of inoperable distal disease or associated comorbidities, or if they have residual or recurrent disease after pulmonary endarterectomy, then they're considered for another catheter-based option that is now available, balloon pulmonary angioplasty. And a number of times before their patients are considered for surgical options, they are treated medically with pulmonary vasodilator therapy, which is important, especially if the mean pulmonary artery pressures are over 30, 35 millimeter uh, mercury. And the drug that is FDA approved is Riosigwat as a pulmonary vasodilator. There are some other pulmonary vasodilators that are sometimes used besides Riosigwat or with Rio Seguat, but that is one that is typically our patients are started on. And would you start the anticoagulants at that point as well? Yes, typically when patients are diagnosed, either they're already on oral anticoagulant therapy because of prior history of PE, but if they're not, they are started on oral anticoagulants and to reduce the risk of further pulmonary emboli. You've talked about uh, pulmonary arteria endarterectomy, I mean, the surgical approach versus catheter approach. In your experience, uh, what proportion of patients would end up having surgery? What proportion would have you know, balloon angioplasty? And what proportion would just be treated medically? So about 30 to 40% patients are not candidates for pulmonary endarterectomy, even though it's considered curative. So it's very important that more than a third patients may not be candidates. And again, some of the reasons are either the disease is inoperable, patients are high surgical risk, or they have residual or recurrent disease despite pulmonary endarterectomy. And sometimes it's patient preference to avoid a major surgery such as endarterectomy. And that's when they're considered for balloon pulmonary angioplasty, which has now emerged as a percutaneous safe option with low risk of complication in these patients who may not be candidates or prefer not to have pulmonary endarterectomy. In terms of medical therapy, in our experience, most of these patients are on medical therapy and, and we treat them with both medical therapy and surgical intervention, either pulmonary endarterectomy or balloon pulmonary angioplasty if they are candidates for either or. I think the pulmonary uh, angioplasty is something really of uh, really of keen interest. Maybe could you just briefly summarize what the success rates are with that? You talked about low complication rates. How, how low is that complication rate? And as I said, you know, what is the success rate? Yeah, great question. I want to take a little dive in the history before I answer that question. So balloon pulmonary angioplasty procedure, the experience of that is very limited in North America. The first report comes from 2001 by Dr. Feinstein, who showed improvement in hemodynamics and patient uh, symptoms, and objectively in terms of NYHA functional class improvement and walk distance improvement. But at that time, there was very high risk of reperfusion injury, about 60% patient, and about 20% patients required mechanical ventilation. The operative mortality was also high, around 6%. So this procedure was pretty much abandoned 
until it was tried again in Japan and in centers in Europe using a modified technique where our staged procedures were performed and serial dilatation over multiple sessions. And we published our first contemporary North American experience in 2019 of this somewhat modified technique, even slightly modified than what's used in Japan, uh, where a few lesions were dilated maximally, but only a few at a time, and multiple sessions were performed. So it was performed in a stage manner. And in our experience, we published our interim analysis in 2019, including 31 patients, 26 had inoperable disease and five had residual or recurrent disease. We noted a significant improvement in mean pulmonary pressures, even after an average of about three sessions, uh, two to three sessions, the mean pulmonary pressures dropped from 40 to 29 in our cohort and pulmonary vascular resistance decreased from 5.5 wood unit to 3.3 wood unit. There was also significant improvement in patient symptoms. About 60% patients had improvement in NYHA functional class. The walk distance improved by about 40 meters. And echocardiographic parameters of RV function also improved significantly. And the procedure was acceptably safe. And there were complications, significant complications, in only about three out of 75 procedures. One patient developed hemoptysis requiring ICU stay overnight. Another patient uh, had significant reperfusion injury that required mechanical ventilation, but he was discharged and ultimately passed away within 30 days. So that was counted under our mortality, 30-day mortality. And the third patient had cardiac tamponade, but he also had PCI and was on clopidogrel. And those are the only three patients out of 75 procedures. So we reported a significant both objective and subjective improvement, improvement in hemodynamics, patient symptoms, as well as very low risk of complication. Well, I certainly want to thank you and your colleagues for um, the success that you've uh, enjoyed with these uh, patients. It does sound as if some patients will need a second or even a third procedure based on those numbers that you just gave. But just to summarize then, these patients that present with pulmonary hypertension have a high index of suspicion. You emphasize the importance of the VQ scan, the the, uh, the cardiac cath, and now the sort of then the subsequent imaging and then the therapeutic, you know, invasive approaches that you described, both surgery and uh, balloon angioplasty. Is there anything else you would like to add at this point? Just you know, we just got a, a few seconds before we have to wrap this up. You summarized it very nicely, and I would just say that there should be high index of suspicion, and VQ scan should be performed in patients with precapillary pulmonary hypertension. And once the diagnosis is suspected or confirmed, they should be referred to centers of expertise so that they can be treated with one of these surgical options if they're candidates for the same. Well, this has been a very helpful discussion, uh, Dr. Anand, and I'm sure our uh, listeners and audience will really appreciate this. And and I think that uh, clearly these patients need to be identified. And uh, as you say, if there is that uh, suspicion or uh, proven their diagnosis, uh, consider um, referral to a center of excellence. So thank you again very much for your time and, and joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining us today. Feel free to share your thoughts and suggestions about the podcast by emailing cvselfstudy at mayo.edu. 
Be sure to subscribe to the Mayo Clinic Cardiovascular CME podcast on your favorite platform and tune in each week to explore today's most pressing cardiology topics with your colleagues at Mayo Clinic. This has been a Mayo Clinic podcast.